Hello there and welcome to Hungry. Hungry is the podcast for the next wave of challenger food and drink brands looking to pour gasoline all over their growth. Each week we'll interview successful founders, thought leaders, unpack their lessons and provide you with the toolkit to scale super fast. I am Dan Pope, I am your host and without further ado, let's get started. Hi there guys, thank you so much for listening as always, it means the absolute world to me. Before we jump into this episode, I need a really big, 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 big favour. I have pitched us some massive guests, humongous guests, and unfortunately they've said no because my subscriber count isn't big enough. Please, please, please just hit the subscribe button on Apple or Spotify or follow. Ultimately it helps all of us bigger guests equals better conversations equals hopefully better insights for you which means you can scale hopefully faster with a little less stress as well so please hit that subscribe button and yeah enjoy this episode hi there guys uh just quick quick little ickle interruption i am so 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 gassed and thrilled to announce that mackenzie jones are extending their partnership with hungry beyond thrilled who are mackenzie jones well first and foremost billy is a great mate known him for years Second, they are, well, FMCG recruitment specialists. I know recruiter probably gives you the ick. Rest assured, they're not the neggy nose heads who will pester you on LinkedIn asking if you've had your breakfast yet. I personally think they're less recruiter, more growth partner. They are loved and adored and are trusted, trusted by brands uh, like Real Superfood, Lucky Saint, Hello Fresh, Fever Tree. But why? Why reach out to McKenzie Jones? Very, very simple. If you want to launch brand into retail, you need a head of sales, speak to Billy. If you want to in-house your marketing activities with a head of marketing rockstar, speak to Billy. Or if you want to, they, they really specialize in D2C. So if you need someone who's going to really kind of pour gasoline on your D2C channel, speak to Bill. Or if you just want a general knit and natter, chew the fat, have a chin wagathon, speak to Billy. He's a top bloke. Message him on LinkedIn or ask me for an intro via email and I will get that sorted. Thank you all. There's a horror story in food and drink that absolutely no one talks about. It surreptitiously scurries through the underbelly, causing throbbing headaches, wasted money, huge amounts of pain, dodgy barcodes. So many brands do the hard work. They create the product, name the brand, open the bank account, and then they cut bloody corners online and they order a dodgy barcode. Not sort your barcodes out is like scoring your own goal before you've even laced your boots and got on the pitch. It's a souffle of aggro. You know, you've got to relabel products, waste time. I've even had a pal who's, um, who lost a planet organic listing, so they had the wrong barcodes. But, thankfully, not all heroes wear capes. GS1 UK are the superhero, and they are the solution. Barcodes from GS1 UK are globally recognised, uh, trusted and accepted by all retailers and marketplaces, giving you the confidence to sell your products anytime, anyplace, anywhere. But GS1 UK are so, so much more than that. Uh, they really are kind of a spring well of advice uh, for buccaneering brands 95% of their community are SMEs you can get free tickets to events um, and invites to talks big big picture opportunities just like to plan organic boots and Sainsbury's and help you know with advice like export and it's just so 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 much and look don't say I don't treat you um, there's an oh so special offer through the podcast get 20% off your first year's membership with GS1 UK by using the code hungry20 at checkout thank you so much Hello there, people and listeners of the Hungry Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome James Cosmo um, onto the Hungry Podcast. James had a glittering um, acting career, featured in some of well my favourite films and films we'll all know: Braveheart, Train Spotting, Troy, um, Head of the Night's Watch, and Game of Thrones. 
I think you're a finalist in Big Brother. You've had a very long oh, yeah. career. <laughs> but more importantly and more recently, James has launched uh, a whiskey brand called The Storyman, um, which is, we've actually got a couple of bottles in front of us right now. It's a, a kind of, Convival, convival spirit, if I ever said that right. Convivial. Convivial, there we go. Good start. Inspired by James Cosmo, Handscraft, and the Annadale Distillery and shared by you. We'll probably have to maybe try some shortly. Yeah. Um, but gorgeous branding. And what I'm so excited to sport, explore to you today is, as, as, as we were talking about before we hit the record button, is I really believe every brand is a story. Mm. Um, there's the guy from that book, uh, uh, Sapiens, I don't know if you've ever read Sapiens. Oh, yeah, you're in Malaria. Yeah, 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 in Malaria. He, yeah. he says a business is just a fiction. Yeah. I think that's really yeah, yeah. interesting. It's like the way... That we buy into. You've got to buy into it. As a yeah. founder, you've got to sell sell your uh, story to get investors on, to get people on, to negotiate. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. And I really believe the yeah. brand is a yeah. story. It's the stories, the lynch or the linking thing between the founder's soul as yeah. a brand. yeah. And the bigger the bigger thing, almost like the brand and the packaging is the vehicle for the story. Yeah. Um, but where, but where I want to start mm. is, um, I'd, I'd, in conversation with this, I, as I said, I rewatched Braveheart, rewatched Train Spotting, yeah. and you poor man, you must be sick of the sight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've, I've spent a lot of time with you, Jake, before we've even hit the record button. But, um, the opening scene in Train Spotting is, is one of the, the most powerful opening scenes I think in a film you've for this yeah. is you watch it on YouTube it's it's Iggy Pop they're running yeah. down uh the Edinburgh High Streets yeah. and I actually listened to a podcast with as I Irving Walsh or Irving Irving Walsh who is the writer of Trains Modeling mm-hmm. and he said the opening scene is everything and he talked about uh, the famous boogie night scene yeah. John Travolta you've got the yeah, yeah. in the background mm-hmm. um where I'm going with this is I listened to another podcast you did and you said, I'm an actor to my bones. Uh-huh. I can't be anything else, even if it's hard. Yeah. And I'd love to, like, if we could pick a specific day in when you were growing up in Glasgow, that could be like your opening scene to this conversation, right? And I want to use that to like explore like why I'm an actor to my bones. I can't be anything else. What, what would that opening scene be for you, do you think, James? Um. Uh, well, I I, um, I got into acting when I was seventeen years old, and I'd, I left school when I was fifteen. I, I hitchhiked down to London when I was seventeen. Um, my my mum supported us. She worked in the Singers uh, Factory in Clyde Bank. Um, my sister and I, um, and uh, I I sort of wheedled my way. And my father was an actor uh, who lived down there in London down here and uh I sort of wheedled my way in pretending I was an actor been pretending ever since I didn't go to drama school didn't do anything um I learned from people that really knew what they were doing and kept my eyes open and watched that but all of the uh, it wasn't the the first job or the second no it was the second job I did which was a phone call the Battle of Britain uh and I played a fighter pilot in that and I had a uh, what was it? A, a, a try and vitesse convertible. Uh, you know, the film was paying well, and I got this car. And I was we were filming up in Cambridge, and I was I was whizzing down the the A whatever it is A one or whatever in this convertible, and I thought I don't want to be anything else. This is just beautiful. I love it. I don't want to do theatre. I want to do movies. That's what I wanted, and that's what I stuck to. That's what I did. I suppose. <sighs> 
So the first question is, is there's a lot of people wanting to be an actor, right? Yeah. There's a lot of people yeah. wanting to be a movie star. There's a lot yeah. of people. And there's a big difference. There's a big difference, yeah. right? Yeah. What is the difference between wanting to be an actor and a movie star in your definition? Well, I, I think um, people want to be movie stars because they don't know what being a movie star is. Um, I have observed and had a, a slight, I'm by no means uh, uh, a star of anything, but I've observed, I've, 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 I've seen it firsthand and it's, it's, it's not particularly enjoyable or, or um, uh, gratifying to be a film star. That, that doesn't really mean anything. You're just someone that's recognised in, in a film. What does that mean? It doesn't mean a, means fuck all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Being an actor, people saying, God, I love the character that you played, mm. you know, and I, I really believed in that character. You brought some sort of life to what was written on a page. You brought that person to life and he seemed real to the audience. That's what being an actor is. Being a movie star, after that, yeah, absolutely. And so, absolutely. and so, you wanted to be an actor, not a movie star. Absolutely, yeah. Always okay. have been. Oh, I've always thought that they, and it's not through some sort of reverse egotism, but I've I've always thought that that um, celebrity, if you like, is the collateral damage to what you do as a film actor. Mm. It's just something that happens. Mm. You know, some people think that you that that you are that character, that you are that heroic character. You're not. You're just someone that that pretends to be that heroic character. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, as maybe a bit like Inception, a podcast about how to create a podcast yesterday. Uh -huh. And there's a guy called Tim Ferris, who's now a huge podcaster. He's had the uh, Kobe Bryant on the basketball player. He's had Arnold Schwarzenegger on. Really, yeah. And he purposely set up the podcast in twenty fourteen so that it was anonymous, so people wouldn't see what he looked like. Uh-huh. Now, 10 years later, that podcast got big, and he's like, I'm now not famous, quote-unquote. Yeah. He's not like he's not like Leonardo DiCaprio or a yeah. famous second. Yeah. But he goes into a co-working space in New York, and most tech founders will know who he is, right? And he was like, it's fucking hideous. All I wanted to do was do a podcast. Yeah. And now I've got all this collateral damage, as you so yeah. said, to go along with it. It's almost like... Fame's this thing people look for or, or crave to have. And I think it's actually, it's like Icarus, who flies too close to the sun. When you actually get it, you're like, oh, yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not what it's all made up. No, I, you're, abso you're absolutely right, Dan. It's, um, uh, I mean, I, I was up in Edinburgh on Sunday there and I was walking up. It's the, the fringe, you know, so it's really busy. There's lots of stuff going on, you know, and it's going through the crowd and things. And, and somebody shouted my name and just grabbed me, grabbed my jacket, you know. That's... You think what is that about? What is that they wanted to click? Uh, it's really, it's it's weird. Mm. So that's just a tiny little thing. Imagine, I remember from when we were doing Braveheart, um, Ethan, who you know, had, had, he was a baby in a pram, and we were staying out in this little village called Kalini, and we are just outside Dublin, and we walked down from our apartment into the village, a little beautiful village. And we were just taking the, the little one for a, a walk and some fresh air. And then we we're going to get something to eat. And Mel Gibson pulled up and it, uh, his driver pulled up outside this restaurant. And we just said hi like that. And, and we walked on and he went in uh, to the hotel with his wife. And by the time we turned around at the short street and came back, there was a crowd of maybe 
50, 80 people standing outside the restaurant, looking in the window. And he came out. He'd only been in there 10 minutes. He came out with his wife and get in the car and they drove off. Mm. You know, like, what kind of life is that? No wonder they buy ranches. It's hideous. A thousand miles from anywhere. I mean, I mean, I mean, but but to, to then play the counter side to that, I remember I was working in a, P, a PR agency as an intern when I was like yeah. 21, so t- almost 10 years ago now. And I was just, I kept, I was so bored. I was like, fuck, let's just go have a cigarette next. <laughs> it's probably the best cigarette break I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and I went outside and I saw this small, diminutive kind of man, not diminutive, just a short kind of guy in all black. Anyway, I turn around, he turns around, it's Ricky Gervais, right? And the, the Office is my favourite programme of all time. I genuinely thought it was fine for me. He got the black cab, the black cab was dying off. Um, I genuinely thought it was okay for me to run down the cab, <laughs> knock on the window, tell him I love the office and ask for a picture. I was thinking, I, I went into the office, I think people must have just thought I'd had like the best shag of my life or something because I was walking around the office like, oh my God, I'm buzzing. <laughs> and they're like, oh, what happened? I was like, oh, I just had a, a picture of your face. But it's like, the other side of the coin is the obsession with celebrity. And we we know these pe- we think we know these people more than we actually do. Yeah. Even yeah. though we've never met them. Yeah. It's such a weird thing. It's it like, is. I think I know Joe Rogan because I've listened to hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of yeah, Joe Rogan. Yeah, yeah, as I have, yeah. You know, like, and this is what they were saying this podcast just says. It's like, you may spend three hours a week with Joe Rogan in your ears, mm-hmm. but you may only see, you see, see your mum or dad yeah. for 20 minutes a week. Yeah. It's quite a weird situation. Yeah. And have a, a much more intellectually um, stimulating, in, stimulating uh, interaction with Joe Rogan than you would your mum and dad. Mm. Yeah, mm. it's it's is mad. What so so you, you just to kind of go back. So you, so you yeah. said you wanted to be an actor from 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 day one. Yeah, and that's that's a really strong why, right? So yeah. I think. If I'm right in saying I'd listened to somewhere that you were, you were sat with your wife having a curry and... Oh, yeah. Well, mouth called. Yeah. So it's, I want to go back back to the kind of those early maybe 10, 15 years of your career, right? Yeah, yeah. When you hadn't had that, and sorry if this is being kind of speculative, but that big shot, right? Yeah. How do you keep going in that period or what, what are you saying to yourself? That's the... That's, that's the, the one of the the core elements, Dan, is that when, for most actors, male or female, when when they start, it's it's incredibly tough, especially nowadays. It's it's horrendous trying to get a job and trying to get a job that that pays anything, because there's so many people that just want to be in front of that camera. They will do anything to work for freedom, whatever. So it's it's very very tough for everyone, and so. I always thought that I would always work. I would always work. I've never, I'm 75 now. I've never taken a penny from the government. Not one fucking penny. Although I get a pension now, but I've paid huge amounts of tax. So I'm just getting a little bit back. But I never took any benefits. Um, because of my circumstance, I know some, a lot of people have to take benefits, but I didn't have to. I could go, I could go away and work. You know, so I worked on the roads, which I really enjoyed. I, I, I like to say I built the Clydeside Expressway, not completely alone, but I did help. Um, so I, I worked at anything that could that could keep me going. Um, but I never thought that as an actor, I never thought that I was giving up. You know, that I'm oh, I'm not an actor, I'm a labourer. 
or I'm, I'm working in a bar or a restaurant or anything, bodyguard even, anything um, to earn money because I was, as an actor, I was observing life just from a, through a different lens. I was observing life through the lens of a labourer, of a barman or whatever, but I was still observing people. And one day I thought, I'm, I might I might use that. I might use something that, that has gone into my head subliminally about the way be, people behave. So observe, observe, observe. And so I, I never felt that I wasn't an actor. I was like an actor who was not acting at the moment, but still getting information ab about my job. So you're almost being, that's, it's almost that state of like, instead of like doing and thinking, you're almost like being. And it's like, yeah. Rick Rue has talked about this is, is you're not, I am suddenly creative. Mm. It's, you're a creative being. He talks about being creative. So whether you're doing the laboring job yeah. or you're doing the bodyguarding, body, doesn't say body, <laughs> bodyguarding job, is that all you can kind of use as fodder? Yes, absolutely. Pull, in, pull into acting. Absolutely. If you've got a drama school and you spend three years there with kids the same age as you, well, you do learn. You learn a lot about the classics. You learn a lot about stagecraft, but you learn fuck all about life. <clears throat> Are there any examples of, of of some of those jobs that you've pulled into on Scott Fuller McCurrosity? Oh, all the time. You all pulled into a role. All the time. All the time. Characters that you play, and you think, where did that come from? Mm. And you might not be able to specifically identify that that person or that trait or whatever, but you know that that came from observation at some point. Mm. Yeah. So, so just go back. So, so you, I'm trying to like plot, plot out the steps leading up to this Mel Gibson call, which yeah. then gave you the break and brave heart. Yeah. So, you said you were a, a bouncer, a, um, a bodyguard, labourer, dozens of jobs, dozens of jobs, dozens, dozens of jobs. Dozens. Yeah. Did you ever have a moment when you thought sort of? fuck this, is it going to work out? And the reason I ask that is people listen to this podcast, they'll have a food and drink brand. Yeah. And I think a lot of success is just sticking in Ooh. there. It's just, it's just, all it is, it's like, if you just stick at something long enough, it's going to work. But it's, but what were the, did you ever have like a day of doubt? Well, how did you? Yeah, you know, when, when I, I talk to young actors that I'm working with or whatever, and I often, funnily enough, I, 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 I use that word, stickability. You stick at it. You keep going. You wake up in the morning and you think, fucking, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm such a loser, honestly. I'm just getting nowhere. But you get up and you keep doing it and you keep doing it and you keep doing it. And eventually those walls start to crumble because the world, the universe realises he's not giving up. He's just getting there. And it happens. It does happen. So many people get knocked back a dozen times, you should say, Come on, bring it on. Knock me back a few more times. I'll fucking show you what I'm made of. And that's what makes the difference. Hi there, guys. Super, super quick one. Um, I write a weekly newsletter called Hungry Friday Feast. It goes live at 8 a.m. every Friday. I'm pouring my soul into this bad boy. It's probably my favorite creative endeavor I've ever done. I basically pick apart all the biggest lessons, all the biggest learnings from all the wonderful guests and throw it into a feast or a newsletter. We've got over 1,200 subscribers. Come and join the party. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. It's right at the top. Subscribe. And if you are already a subscriber, please just forward it on to a friend. Do the amount of favour. It would mean the world to me. Anyway, back to the old episode, boys and girls.
you can really bend reality to, to where you want it to be, but it's just... The universe will conspire yeah. to make it happen. Mm. It will. Mm. I'm absolutely sure of that. In, p- providing you're willing to, to not give in. Is, uh, yeah. There's the yeah. quote we t- I've talked about with the last couple of guests, is gradually then suddenly. Yeah. I think it's Ernest, Ernest Hemingway. Uh-huh. The quote says, gradually, 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 your career, you're doing the labouring, you're doing the, uh, the, the jobs, you're doing the odd job yeah. here and there. Gradually, gradually... Suddenly, the Mel Baker Gibson phone call, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, people think it was a Mel Gibson phone call. It wasn't. It, yeah. it, was, it was all that stuff I'd done before. Yeah, exactly. Trigger that thing that happened. Do you need those little yeah, consequential things? You've got to. Yeah. Almost, I have that with this podcast. I'm just thinking, just each day, one new, one new person. That's all I'm going. Yeah. For. yeah. If I get one new person in, yeah, and they like it, they'll tell their friends. Yeah. Just keep doing that. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's reassuring for people listening. But the so. What were some of those 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 early roles? And like, were you making money? Were you? Yeah, was it hand to mouth? Like, what was that? What did that feel like? That at was the time? age. Yeah, when I made money, what did I want to do with it? I wanted to spend it. I had a great time. I was I was in London when it was all happening. It was it was fantastic. So you 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 know you were in that whole crowd of young actors doing different stuff, looking for different stuff. It was it was amazing. Okay, and then and then Mel Gibson calls you. Yeah, this is this is a few years later because I was in my early forties. So what? So in your thirties to to the forties, what was that like? Was that I was doing? You know, I I was doing um, jobbing work. I did a series called uh, Roughnecks about the. We did two seasons of that about the oil rig, the early days of the oil rig uh, workers in uh, the North Sea, um, which was really enjoyable. I, you know, I was. I was building a career. I was becoming known as a uh, a good sort of go to actor for for certain types of specific sort of roles, you know, sort of hard nose sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so I, I was I was doing okay, but but when Ethan was born, um, Annie, my wife, was she was she went straight back to work at the BBC because we wanted we had just a little um, one bedroom flat in Twickenham, and I hadn't been working. And uh, so she was the, bre- the the breadwinner for us, and I was, which was lovely. I was looking after my son, you know. I'd, I'd you know, it was great. You know, it was like six months just looking after your baby. It was Perfect. fantastic. Yeah, I wouldn't give that up for anything. And at the beginning, you said all I wanted to be was an actor, not a movie star. Yeah. And you were, you were, I suppose, acting. You were doing acting roles, yeah, like that role of yeah. BBC. You were, I suppose, as you said, in a small flat in Twickenham. Were you happy at that stage? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, um, it was it was uh, challenging at times, um, but not as challenging as a lot of people have their lives. Anything but, you know, I was very healthy. My family were healthy. I had nothing to complain about, um, and I I didn't. I, I felt myself very privileged. Um, yeah, it was it was uh, it it was it was a a, a good time. I've. I was very happy at that time. Yeah, I think that I've always been happy with with less than more. I, I, there's a delicious lesson in that for listeners, and it's being if you fall in love with the process, you ultimately win, yeah. right? Because yeah. you loved acting, whether that was acting on a small stage or acting in Bloody Braveheart or acting in Game of Thrones. Yeah, you loved acting. So yeah. even though where so many people will go into something thinking, "Well, I need to be in the next fucking Harry Potter," or "I need, yeah. I need that, I need that external goal." It's just not, and, it, and it's the same with food and drink bands. It's like people like, "I want that big exit. I want that listing. 
I want that to sell that business for loads of money, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But if you go into thinking that, then you're fucked because yeah. it's going to get tough. Yeah. And if you don't love the process, if you don't, you, if you're not waking up every day, as you say, when, when the, the, when you love it so much that the nose don't just bounce off you like water. Yeah. It's very easy to stick at it, right? Yeah. And then ironically, that's when the big break comes. Right? Yeah. 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 I, I, that's so interesting. So then for listeners, just describe the call, call for Braveheart because I think that's really. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I love curry. I love it. Same. What do you, what's your go-to? I love food. I love food. Uh, I like, I like, Prawn dan sack, kind of the lengthy sort of the the sweet and sweet and sour of yeah, oh, it's yeah. Such a dish. Yeah. yeah, I've never had prawn though. Yeah, yeah, king prawn dan sack is is really nice. And chicken is like, I, and I love lamb. I've got some Indian friends, like Pamind, Bav and Paminda, and Paminda cooks a, a lamb, slow cooked lamb. Dear God, and it's just fantastic. But she won't. She says, oh. Come round, come round. I'll, I'll show you the recipe. I'll do it. She never does. She never. She never will. It's our secret, and that's cool. That's fine with me as long as she makes it for me. Um, but yeah. Uh, anyway, I love curry. We love curry. And I, I was at work, uh, living uh, off uh, what Annie could earn, and um, which was fine. But we 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 had a futon that me Annie and the baby slept in in one room, and then in the other room. Um, we had a, a a rocking chair that Annie's mum lent us and a TV, and that was about it. But the treat of the week was a curry on Saturday night, and uh, in those days, like they would show a late night film starting at eleven or something, I suppose, to catch people coming back from the pub. And uh, so I'd ordered in the curry, and uh, it came, and uh, I sat down. There was some film I wanted to watch. I always remember it was twenty to eleven, you know. I'm uh, got it all. I've got the tray on my lap and all that. And the baby's fast asleep in the bed and all that. And he's, that's good. So the phone rings. Fuck's sake. The phone's just about to start. And the curry's in my lap. I said to him, Look, that'll be my pal Dominic. And um, he'll be in the pub pissed. And he said, well, come over for a bite. I said, just tell him, I'll see him tomorrow at lunchtime in the old anchor. And, you know, I want to eat my curry. She said, yeah. So she lifted the phone. She says, hello. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Just hang on. Yeah, she went in and was a little kitchenette. She went into the kitchenette and shut the door. I lifted up and I was sure it was Dominic. And I said, hello. And this voice said, hey, Jimmy, it's uh, Mel. I went, Mel? And he went, yeah. Mel Gibson, I went, oh, fuck, it really is Mel Gibson. Because I'd met him about six months before in a general meeting, we call it, where you just meet people in. these the general meetings? He, he was thinking he might be making a film in the UK, wanted to meet some British actors, da-da-da. That was all. I was just spent 10 to five minutes with him. Right. And that's and, a common thing in, in the industry. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And um, anyway, um, he just said, uh, I've been watching your showreel and uh, do you want to play Campbell? And I said, go man, I'd love to. And he said, great. He said, I'm flying over tomorrow. See if when I get when I land, when I get it. And that was it. Boom. There you go. That changed everything. Yeah. So what what does it feel like as you as you sit there on the sofa and you tuck into your prawn dance? Oh, that's, what's that feeling inside? I don't know if it was a prawn dance. Oh yeah. Probably a 
chicken madras or something at that time. <laughs> um, I always remember, I, I looked out and the moon was there, and, you know, and I thought, what time is it? And I looked found the clock, 22.11. So this this changes everything, I guess. Uh, it was it was amazing. I love that. It's, it's just a great story, and just it's that gradually, then suddenly, gradually, then yeah. suddenly, gradually, then suddenly. Yeah. And I'll tell you another instance when I was doing um, Jack Roberts just to sit. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. When I was doing Jack Ryan, was that a recent one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. I mean, it's a huge show uh, for Amazon. I think it's the biggest, most expensive show, in fact. And um, my agent phoned me. I was sitting out there. A agent phoned me. Um, the uh, and she said, uh, "I've just had a phone call from the from the the states." I said, "Okay, um, what is it, Olivia?" And she said, um, it, "It's from uh, Jack Ryan, the, the producers of Jack Ryan." I went, "Uh huh." Now to explain when you when you you do a big series like that, if you're not a big name, you know, you go through a process of. So you, you've got all the different boxes to take, you know, you've got the not so much the directors in America, but the producers, the production company, the network, the da 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 you've got to tick all these boxes. And you know there's other people that are doing the same thing for the same part, mm. you know, and it gets narrowed down and narrowed down, and then maybe there's just three of you or two of you and they decide. She said, it's a straight offer. It's a completely straight offer. I went, wow, Really? She said, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge part. She said, I, I just don't understand it. She said, but anyway, she said, the producers want you, the network wants you, and most importantly, John Krasinski wants you. I said, who's John Krasinski? He said, he's the guy, donut. He's the guy that's playing Jack Ryan, he, The Office. I said, I've never seen The Office, The American Office. Anyway, um, flash forward, the first time I was in Budapest, um, first time I was working with John and Krasinski, and John came up and we were talking to me. He said, do you, know, do, you, do you know why we asked you to do this? I said, I'd love to know. I said, no idea. Mm. He said, my wife and I, um, uh, what's her name, um, Emily Blunt, were sitting reading the scripts, of eight episodes, reading the scripts for this season, and we just finished the eighth script, and John said, Pooh. So who do we get to play Luka Gotcharov, this Russian master spy? And he said, Emily just said instantly, James Cosmo. And he said, yeah, you're right. I've never met Emily Blunt in my life. Never met John Krasinski in my life. Don't know anything about how does that happen? Mm. It happens from gradually, 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 gradually. And they just flick the switch and that's all. So for people who are listening to this, who are on a walk or a run, and they've either got a brand. We now have listeners that do not, are not just food and drink. It's people who are just people who are hungry. Who want to do good things. Yeah. Who are struggling. Who are thinking, "Fuck this!" Like, what? What's one piece of wisdom you could give to them with everything you know? If you believe in your heart that you're doing something worthwhile and that enhances your life and other people's lives, then if you know that you have a a moral and ethical goal to do something, then do it and do it fearlessly with courage and know that the universe will conspire to make that happen. Uh, because 
you know, it's like the ant at the dam. What you think I can't? Well, you haven't met me yet. Uh, really, it just takes that. Because that attitude, you know, we all emote um, who we are inside. And if you have a real belief in something, I'm sure you've met people, you think, God, this person really is, you know, they're on a mission to do something. They're impressive. This guy is impressive. This woman is impressive in what they do. We emanate things. And if you have that in your mind and you know that you're coming from a, a decent moral and ethical place and that you want success and that success is going to reverberate through your family, your employees, all those people, I think the universe will conspire. God will conspire to help you. And no amount of uh, hindrance and barriers will be able to stop you because you will do it. It's linking this to the brand that's in front of me, Story Man. It's like every man has a story they tell themselves. Mm. And if the story you tell them yourself is one, not necessarily of like positivity where you're walking around buzzing your tits on the whole time, that's just not life, right? Mm. But the story you tell yourself of, I can achieve something greater than, yeah. and I've just got to keep going. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm I'm a great admirer of uh, Quakers, um, the, the most... Uh, Quakers, sorry. The Quakers, the yeah. Society of Friends. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, they're remarkable people, hugely unsung to a great extent. Uh, you know, the 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 still a lot of them around, but Cadbury and Fry and Browntree and all those people, they were all Quakers. And the one thing that they brought to their business was that I remember reading somewhere that um, uh, you would be hard-pressed to know the difference between the man who owned the company and the man who worked for the company. Because the man who owned the company was not concerned with a wonderful carriage to drive in and beautiful horses and elegant clothes. He was interested in building a business that benefited him, his family, his employees, and the greater society. And those people took people that had been working in horrible cotton mills and, and dreadful positions. They built the Cadbury um, village. They, they people Cadbury chocolate is yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. And round, round, round tree sweets. Absolutely. Those okay. people, all, all Quakers. Yeah. And they, they, they built new housing for their workers. They educated their children. They had a huge and profound impact on society. Um, you know, um, housing for, for the dispossessed and the, the, the poor people in the East End of London, all Quakers. But they were terrific businessmen, but they had a moral and ethical purpose to what they were doing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's mad how... Those there, there has to be this bigger why, and I, I, as I, as I said to you before we hit the record button, James is for for, for challenger food and drink brand mm. founders watch Braveheart. Like there's a lot of lessons in that as as being a founder. It's almost like William Wallace it and the founder's journey are like intertwined. You've got the Scottish almost like the challenger brands. They're the, they're the David. You've got the English who are the yeah. Goliath. Who for in our language is sort of the the Mars, the PepsiCo. The Unilever, um, Will Wallace has a strong why. Obviously, his wife gets murdered by the the English. He has a he has that he has that big fucking fire burning in it, mm. burning in his soul. I think a lot of founders have that. They've got to have that 
that relentless fire in their soul. Of course you do. There's that famous scene which uh, I love when he when he rallies rallies the troops together. You know that. Um, what are you on horseback? Yeah, he's on a horseback. Oh, that's Tommy. That's one of the best. Yeah. Watch. Yeah. If anyone watch, I'll put it in the show notes. Watch four minutes out on YouTube. If like if you. That will get you out of bed. Yeah. That is just insane. So, yeah. But that's leading, mobilising people. People listening to this have to get teams together. They have to get, they have to convince supermarkets to take a punt on them. There's so much in that. Yeah. And then there's that bit, and I think it's when you're trying to go into the, uh, I think it's the castle in York, when you know when you're, you're, you're like a shield and you're battering down that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, is, that is the founder's journey. Every yeah. day is, I, I genuinely believe you're getting up. I've got this with this podcast. Suddenly my friend yeah. is with brands. You're running at a brick wall. Yeah. No one's there to support you. You just need to just keep going. And I think I, I just it's such a good film for for brands to watch actually and to, to get them to keep going. Um but what I want to talk about is how 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 you prepare for a role, right? So because it was Campbell the role. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um how 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 did you pre- prepare for that? Because people see a smidge, right? They see yeah. they see. I saw the film. It's a two hour, three hour film. Yeah. yeah. What what's the prep? What what do you do in the run up to that first day on set? Well, I uh, I mean, uh, some actors like to sort of deeply immerse themselves as Daniel D. Lewis and um, method actors or whatever to deeply immerse themselves in in in, in the role. Uh, that's 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 not me. Um, I think for me it's a more subliminal process. I, 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 you know, you read the script a few times, you start, and uh, subliminally, and maybe when you're uh, lying in bed, falling asleep, you think of imagine that character. What what was he like? What's of what's a life did he lead? You know, how did he how did he regard um, living? What value did he have? On life, on other people's lives, on his life, how how desperately would he cling on to that, uh, or would he not? Would he? Were those people very different? All those questions that you ask yourself, and then you have the 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 physical side of it. You know, I can ride horses pretty good anyway, but you know, going out and riding horses all day and and rehearsing fight scenes, it gives you a sort of physical manifestation of of what they were like, you know? And so that all blends into one, you know? And then you have your first day on the set and you're, you're like a jelly. You're just so nervous, but that passes really quickly. And then you just get into the, the core of the work. When you say method acting, so that's that's almost like Keith Ledger in The Joker, isn't it? So, so Yeah, that's right. All came from Stanislavski, you know. What's, what are you actually doing? So you're literally walking around like today pretending you're for the fucking Joker. Just about, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I know, I remember Brendan Gleeson, I said, what was it like uh, to work with Daniel Day-Lewis on Gangs of New York? And he said, he said, wait, he just, he had Eminem in his earphones and he used to sit outside his Winnebago sharpening knives all fucking day. You know, he's <laughs> Well, just sitting Daniel alone just now, you know. Was there the, on set? They are the actor. They are. Yeah, the. Yeah. I mean, he, when he did uh, my left foot, you know, he he spent all his time in a wheelchair and having to get carried to the wheelchair and things. That was, uh, you know. But if that's how you, and he's a magnificent actor. Um, if if that's how you want to approach it and and do it, what well, works for him, it sure does. You know, he's he's uh, one of the finest actors ever. Um. So that's great. Boemi, our beloved sponsor, are helping build the fastest growing challenger food and drink brands. 
look, if you're a small brand just starting out and need your first indie stockist, your first 100 stockists to wholesale, Boemi are the platform to categorically speed that up. But if you're a big brand wanting to get bigger, Boemi are also insane. They make field sales, marble smooth, silky slick. They're just epic. Ollie's, Ollie's been on this podcast twice, actually. They saw a 29% uplift in sales when using Boemi to check major malt listings availability. Insane. 29% uplift by downloading an app. Insane. Lucky Saint, my boy Aaron Duff, who's coming on this podcast in a couple of week, weeks, he uses it to manage a team of 30 people. And they've, Lucky Saint, have unlocked 500 draft listings by using Boemi. Look, you've got to get involved with this stuff. It's absolutely insane. And it will categorically change your life. It's just the sickest platform. I use it all the time at Islands. There's a lot of empathy, I think. What I'm, like, oh, well, what I'm so excited about this conversation, right, is I've interviewed so many founders in food and drink, right? And I, and I know kind of it's hard, but I kind of know the roadmap to build a great brand. I've, I've had a hundred conversations, but I've never had a conversation like this. But I almost think there's a lot of empathy, what you've said there. You're like almost thinking about how X character would think in this situation, yeah. what they, how they respond to that. Would they let go of that? It's like a... There's a lot of empathy in that, and I think it, that in is 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 such a vital skill in everything for our listeners in terms of being able to see what that other person's feeling, yeah. thinking, and you can almost apply that to leadership. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so so you go on you go on the first day on set, and I just out of curiosity, and like, how long would it take to? I feel, I hear stories where like on set is like relentlessly tough and working conditions it's relentless it's a lot less repetitive like what does it f- say that fighting scene that infamous fighting scene yeah how long does that take to film oh we spent uh on specifics you you have to remember that the the um the battle scenes that we filmed in ireland they had about eight hours of battle scenes just fights that they they cut down and cut down and cut down and got the best bit so we spent half of the film doing just battle scenes, just fighting. So it was, you know, it it was um, physically, it was, hell, you know, you're, what, you're riding about in a horse, you're throwing a sword around, you're having these, what's wrong with that, you know? So you're tired at night, yeah, mm. big deal, you know? Um, for people that say it's very arduous, they've never been down a fucking coal mine. Yeah, 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 yeah. So again, that's... That's, yeah, that's, that's arduous, because I'm... My grandfather was a, a coal miner, and uh, my uncles were all coal miners. Um, yeah, so uh, swings and roundabouts, but believe me, acting of any kind ain't as tough as that. Yeah, 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 yeah. In one, I, there's a quote from Danny Boyle, and we'll, we'll get onto Danny Boyle. But for listeners, he's the director of Train Spotting, uh, Slumdog Millionaire. I think did a few other amazing films as well. But he's got a quote, and it says, "To be a filmmaker, you have to lead." You have to be psychotic in your desire to do something. People always like the easy route. You have to push through, to push very hard to get something unusual, something different. Again, back linking this back to food and drink founders, is a lot of our guests, uh, our founders, uh, so not get well, guests are founders, but they're, they're having to be that sort of relentless psychopath, that person who yeah. just believes in themselves. What, what are some of the leadership lessons you picked up from Mel Gibson as when he was directing? that you think could help listeners? Because he would always go the extra mile. You know, if things were tough, he would, he would, he would he'd be the first one there, the first one there doing it. You know, if everyone was exhausted, 
at the end of the day, he was the one that was saying, right, we're going to do this scene because we need to do it. It's going to be a fantastic scene. Everybody up, let's go. He was the one that was in front, you know. Really? And like like that famous book says, you know, the leader eats last. Right. He made sure everyone was okay and up for it before he fed himself. That was not, not literally. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, he was, he was, he was very much, um, follow me and it's going to be great. That's so interesting. So it's, it's almost like like in real life, yeah. William Wallace, when he's saying, oh, yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Like he was actually doing that. He was very much the same. Very much the same. Is there anything else, anything you you didn't, ex- I asked this to a guest the other week whose business partner is Gordon Ramsay, actually. Oh, yeah. And I just, I love speaking to formidable, people who've hung, who are formidable and have hung out with formidable people. It's just interesting. Yeah. Is there anything you, that you didn't expect to learn from Mel Gibson that you that kind of took you by surprise, maybe something subtle or something. Uh, I, yeah, I think actually Mel is quite a shy person mm-hmm. and just through circumstance and through his profession and, and what he loves doing, he has to be gregarious and be out there and, and uh, enthusiastic. But I think he's, he's obviously, um, uh, uh, should I say introverted? Not not shy, but introverted, you know. And he's a deeply religious man, um, which is absolutely fine with me. Um, but I, I didn't realise how much his um, his faith impacted on on his everyday life. And uh, he was a uh, uh, his generosity is extraordinary. Uh, generosity not only in. Uh, uh, and not not gifts, but he was generous with his time um, to lots and lots of people. Um, he would always have time uh, to to talk to actors um, to discuss what they were doing. That was never that was never out of the question. It was always you know if you said Mel, uh, he was always there. And I remember we were doing my death scene, and he, he came up and he said, "It was just." After lunch, we were going to shoot it. So we'd, the afternoon, and uh, he said, Jimmy said, uh, do you know the cheapest thing on this set? And I said, I've got no idea. What, what do you mean? He went, it's the film in the camera. He said, use as much as you like. Just do it. Just go for it. And that was, psychologically, that was really smart because it took the, the heat, the nerves out of it. And I knew that I could have this great big film crew all standing around, and I could shoot that scene. I could just keep saying, I'd like to do another one. I'd like to do another I could do that for the next six hours. Right. And, of course, the heat was off, and we did it in an hour. It was all done. Yeah, I don't really know. Psychological. I, yeah, yeah. Not a trick, but it was it is, psychological, yeah, psychological it's, support. It's changing, yeah, it's changing the the frame. Like I remember I used to work for a brand, and again, kind of playing a sort of food and drink lens, and... I used to get super nervous going to speak to like the big retailers, uh-huh. and someone someone said to me, "It's like don't forget that like it's it's quite crass, right?" It's like don't forget that that buyer's probably taken a shit in the last twenty five four hours, yeah. And it's just yeah. like, oh yeah, I'm just being a yeah. human being, yeah. But that's a great lesson in leadership. Yeah. So so how many? Uh, and as as we were saying about Noah Harari uh, or whatever that wrote Sam, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, everyth- yeah. everything is a, always these brands are. a, are a story, you know, it's just someone else has got, he's 
acting out his thing that he believes in and you're doing your thing, you know, nothing is, you know, that brick wall isn't really a brick wall. It's just your perception. Uh. Yeah, I, I can apply that to my life now. Like I'm trying to get um, more like revenue from the podcast. I've got this like mental block. I think what I'm learning from you, James, is just just kind of fucking smashed, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so just, I want to just out of curiosity here. So, so what do, is it a common thing that actors get really nervous on set? Is that what, uh, why would you guys get nervous? Is that just because you're, you're basically doing, yeah, I mean, you, you have to be nervous. You have to. What? You know, if you if you if you find yourself going onto a set and being the coolest guy there, now you might look the coolest guy there, but inside you are thinking, "Oh, I really hope I don't fuck this up. I really do, and I hope I remember the lines and I've got the character, all those things." Um, and but you have to have that because as soon as you walk onto the set, it's the same with with being on stage. You're you're nervous. You're nervous. You're nervous. And then they go, you're on, and it changes. And all that nervous energy becomes performance. You know, you, 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 you're working at 40% more than you are in, when you're normal. You know, because those, that adrenaline, that excitement, is, it's, it's uh, solidified into, a, into performance, mm-hmm. into that character that you are playing, and you have to have that. If you go on set thinking, ah, it's fine, this is easy. It's going to be a terrible performance. You're, you're done. Mm. I, I mean, I had the same thing of doing quite a bit of public speaking over the last year and yeah. before I was terrified. And where I've kind of, I still, if, I, I'm, like, if I'm not fucking shitting myself, yeah. what well, I'm actually worried. Yeah. And I believe what you've said there is amazing for listeners. It was like, if you're nervous, that's your extra forty percent, mate. Oh, so, so lean into that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, but what would you be nervous about? Is that about letting the director down? Because as I always think, well, with a film, like they've got so many takes. Like, yeah, I know, I know. You, you would think. Yeah, you would think. Yeah, you know, if someone said, "Look, you can do this a million times," but you need it. You need to be nervous. Mm. You know, you need to feel unsure of your footing, because that makes sure that your balance is really right. You know that that you're on song. That's, I think it's just a natural thing of, of performance. That's a great aphorism. Be unsure of your footing yeah. and make sure you balance it yeah. right. I yeah. love that, James. Yeah. In terms of, let's go into, into train spotting. Yeah. Um, and we, we're going to go on to the whisker. Yeah. So I'm just I'm really enjoying this. But um, you, I read somewhere in an article, I think it was in The Sun, and you said, I was privileged to be in Braveheart and Trainspotting. They were both very different movies and did very different things for Scotland. I don't even remember saying this. Yeah, probably. Um, that doesn't make one better than the other, but Trainspotting has amazing contrast from Braveheart and very refreshing too. Yeah. And I looked at, I watched both films back to back. Trainspotting, they, I think they came out a year apart, maybe two years ago. Yeah, kind of done, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they both Scottish. I mean, I suppose... Train spotting pulls you into the dark underbelly of Scotland, yeah. and and Braveheart shows you the the camaraderie of Scotland and almost the kind of the the, the cheeky personality of Scotland. I would say in so many ways. But there's I've been thinking about this as you say you've just been at Edinburgh Fringe. There's Scotland is synonymous with great storytelling. It just is that you've got 
as I said, Edinburgh Fringe, you've got yeah. Billy Connolly, the list of actors, you've got Sean Connery, Gerard Butler, yeah. Ewan McGregor, Robert Carlyle. Yeah. Robert Carlyle in uh, Train Spot. I mean, that's fabulous. Fucking fabulous. I've never seen anything yeah. like it. Yeah, that's I know. Fright. I know. Um, it was it was so so fantastic. And that film yeah. made so many like that that one film made so many young Scottish actors. Oh God, yeah. yeah. But what just to kind of unpack that like how did how did those films for you? What was the impact they had on Scotland as a as a storytelling nation? If that's how you want to raise hearts, I think um, it, it was. Um, I remember I was sitting in Neary's pub with um, Randall Wallace, the screen, the guy that wrote Braveheart. He'd been on holiday a few years before. He'd seen the Wallace Monument in Stirling. Who's that guy? Because I mean, it's the same name. He looked up, read the story and all that sort of stuff, um, which is sort of unclear. Nobody really knows much about William Wallace, um, except for the couple of battles and things. Um and he he wrote this story, and uh, I remember sitting with him uh, in Neary's pub over a pint of Guinness, and I said, "I think this is going to have a huge effect in Scotland." And before that, the Scottish Nationalist Party were peripheral; they weren't mainstream at all. And um, he, he disagreed with me, but it turned out I was right. I, I think. Braveheart um, hits a chord within Scottish people that, personally, I'm 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 not a nationalist. Uh, well, I'm a, a, I think I'm a British nationalist. I'm very proud of of how Scotland and England have been together this long time, and Scotland has had a huge impact on England, on on British society, on on the international. Uh, the Western world will fit a, a completely out of proportion to our our uh, population. We've had a huge effect on the Western world, um, but that, that's by the by. Um, but I think Braveheart was a. I think it was an international success, Dan, because um, the, the the core tenant of of the movie was about the little guys that said. No, we want freedom. We're not going to have this anymore. We're going to stand up and we're going to fight and we're going to defeat this overwhelming, malevolent uh, um, authority um, because we believe that every man is free. Declaration of our growth, which was written hundreds of years before the Declaration of Independence, but is very similar uh, in its in its uh, content. Um so, um, Braveheart's main core was about freedom, was about individual freedom, uh, which is the most important thing that any society can have. We must have individual freedom mm. and self-autonomy um, and, and not be, be ruled by uh, a faceless government that, is, mm. that does not have your well-being at its heart, it has the opposite at heart. And that's why I think it's such a good film to watch for challenger brands, because as, as you so said, rightly said there, James, it's the little guy fighting the big malevolent beast, right? And it's, yeah. there's something in that. And then I suppose the flip side is, what do you think Trainspotting did for, for Scotland and 
and storytelling because the amount of actors that came out of that thing was just yeah. Well, what you know, Danny Boyle is he's a a complete one off. He's he's uh, he is a an extraordinary talent for filmmaking. For and as you mentioned there when he was saying doing the the unusual and the different. I mean, he's throughout his career he's done that. You know, I worked with him before train spotting on the um a play of the month called The Night Watch about mercenaries in Amsterdam. And uh it was it was a joy to to work with him then, you know, and then so when he phoned me and said do you want to play Ewan's dad in uh, Trainsport? I just dived at it, you know, because I've never, I've never worked with a director as talented as that. Yep. What's different about before or since? What's What's different about Danny versus other directors? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. It's he. He inspires the whole crew. Every member of that crew really feels that they are valued, and their input is um, has. Again, value. Uh, they all want to contribute. They all want. I don't know how he does it, but he 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 makes people, or he, he lets people know that they are part of a a bigger project and that their contribution really matters. And that's down to the guy that brings the sandwiches, at, you know, in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the guy that cleans out the Winnebago's. They all feel that they're part of a Danny Boyle film. It's it's extraordinary how you can do it. Because it's not phony. It's it's not it's far from being a a, a device. He just has that love of what he's doing and the talent to know what he's doing. And people just feed off that and they believe in him. Uh, because he believes in them. Yeah, it's, it's a, again, it's a, it's a great leadership lesson. In terms of his creative process slash storytelling kind of not wheelhouse but capabilities, is is that such a different film? And then as he said, it's, you've, you've got to do, what does he say? He says, uh, what does he say? People always like the easy route. You have to push very hard, push very hard to get something unusual. If we were to, you know, rewind in a time machine to, to being on set in 1994, yeah. is there any examples of how what he was saying to push hard to get something unusual? Because one of my big tenets with this podcast is doing things differently. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you try and be like everyone else, you end up like everyone else. Whereas mm-hmm. It's much easier to, to just do something so fucking different. If you're in a category of one, you win. It's mm-hmm. much easier yeah, to yeah. win. Absolutely. It's much easier to win. I mean, that, that reason that film is such a cult, cult following is, is a, a, amazing storytelling for sure, but also just because it was so fucking different. Yeah, absolutely. Is, yeah, if you um, go into that, it'd be brilliant. Yeah. Well, I guess um, if, you, if you were sort of uh, comparing it with um, uh, food or or, or or the the industry, um, if you have if you have a, a big box of shiny apples and some apples are a bit dry looking and and not not very nice, but there's some there's some really big shiny shiny apples and they're 
they're fantastic. They look amazing, but they're still apples. But if there's a single uh, uh, kiwi fruit sitting in the counter, you go, what the fuck's that? Wow, look at that. That's completely different. Yeah, I know those are, and there's some nice apples there, and there's there, other ones. That's a nice shiny apple. But look at that. You know, there is, as you say, that being different is is the thing. And I think people within the industry looked at Danny and because of that enthusiasm they had, the belief in what he's doing and the product that he's going to make, that um, uh, they, they, they saw that. They saw that this is, this is different. This is a film that's, that's not going to cost $100 million to make, at the end of the day, $50 million profit. You know, that's not what it is. It's a film that's going to cost uh, five million, and it's going to make five hundred million because it's different. Wow. With those shiny fruit, you could sort of work out maybe it will make that if it does okay. But that different one, that's going to that's going to be the one that's going to go. Wow. Yeah, I was thinking, reflecting on that. It's it's such a, it's such a true true lesson i think everyone wants everyone wants to be the shinier apple where it's actually just easier to be the kiwi yeah yeah but it, well it's it is yeah because you're sitting in a box with a lot of shiny yeah 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 you know? the so so what's he taught you about storytelling because i think storytelling is i'm going to come on to the story man is it's, it's, it's a tenant for life really yes yeah, yeah. great life yeah. you need great stories what's he taught you about storytelling specifically um to be it's funny because when Danny directs you, you don't realise you're being directed. You're sitting with a cup of tea and a fag or whatever, and you're talking about different things, and he's talking away in that accent is from Coventry or whatever. Isn't he? Yeah, he's Man- Mancuni, isn't Mancuni. he? Yeah, he's got a problem with Mancuni. I mean, yeah. he's talking away about different things you can win. You go, oh, okay. oh, I, yeah, he's, he's, he, he's, he's very subtle in his direction. He's not uh, in any way, um, um, you know, do it this way. He he, uh, he gently nudges you um, into the position where where you are going to bring out the best in yourself. That's what he wants. He wants you to bring out the best of what you can do. You know, so he has to have faith in you as an actor. He he has to know that there's more in you than you think there is, um, and he's the one that facilitates that. David Lean, who made Lawrence of Arabia and, and lots of other great films, and um, he was a Wonderful director, but he said, my, pre- my prime objective is to make that actor comfortable in the part that he's playing and be happy on the set, because then I facilitate that performance. And is there, is there an example of how he did that on train spotting, either with you or you and McGregor? Or- I think with Bobby Carlyle especially. What is, yeah. You know, Bobby, I'm, I'm sure Bobby came and, you know, Bobby's a Glasgow kid the same as me. You know he's he's met people like that, but I think uh, Danny gave him the the, uh, the the free reins to explore Begbie like that, um, and and said, "Yeah, you go for it, go for it. You show me what you've got in your head." And it was it was magical. Uh, yeah. At the time, did you realise what a cult film you guys were making? There was there was there like a feeling? Yeah. Uh, or what, or, or I was, think there was, well, there, there was a, it was such an ensemble piece, you know, uh, 
um, with so many terrific young actors, you know, like like my old buddy Kevin McKidd and uh, um, uh, Ewan Bremner, uh, uh, Bobby, obviously, and, and uh, Ewan McGregor. Um, yeah, that on ensemble was, um, you did feel that, that, that this was the, you know, those kids obviously younger than me, but you thought these are the brightest and best that, that Scotland can produce that Danny's chosen, you know. Uh, and so so that that film comes out, right? And what I'd love to go into, I just, I, I'd like to ask potentially like difficult questions. So you're in the driving seat, tell yeah, me yeah. fuck off and I will. But like what, what have been some of the really dark days because that film paints a really dark picture of not a dark picture but like a, a uh it's it's almost as as much as it's awe inspiring it's disturbing that film. yeah and yeah, it paints yeah. a picture oh, yeah. there's a picture yeah. of glasgow yeah yeah what were some of the really oh, edinburgh yeah. well, sorry edinburgh sorry um i'd get killed if i said that no, <laughs> but, but the what were some of the really dark days of you growing up in glasgow like what were some of the like maybe the hardest day you've had to go through in glasgow well, just like in your career, maybe, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, I was, I was really sort of out, out of Glasgow. Um, you know, in my sort of late teenage years, I didn't didn't really go back that much. Um, but when we when we were doing uh, uh, train spotting, which was actually shot in Glasgow, most of it, a lot of the interiors were, <clears throat> were shot in Glasgow. Um, but Glasgow is a very interesting city. You know, a, a no mean city, as the book calls it. Um, no, what's it called? No Mean City. It was a famous book written in the thirties about the the razor gangs in Glasgow, which was what was the it, razor gangs? Oh, razor! They used to fight with open razors. Ah, oh, out, yeah. Slash each. It was it's it has a a terrible history of 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 violence. It's a it was, and to a certain extent, still is a very violent city. Um, I don't, I don't you know one could say it's because of the social deprivation or whatever. Um, I, I'm not sure about that. I don't. I don't know. I think a lot of, a lot of very fine people came through the exactly the same circumstances and and made a huge difference to the world. But no matter what, it's it's always been a a very violent city, uh, and uh, it has a as all of Scotland, it has the most horrendous problem with with uh, with um, class A drugs, just horrendous. It's um, th- per capita. It's three times the number of England. When you cross that border, three times more people addicted to Class A drugs in Scotland. It's unbelievable. Uh, it's and why do you think that is? No idea. No idea, Dan. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, is there a darkness in the Scottish soul? Sort of. Uh, I, d- I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe people just give up eventually. And, uh, uh, you know, and it's a generational thing. You know, if you have a, if you have two generations of people that have been unemployed and living on benefits and taking drugs to ease the the uh, psychological wilderness that they're in, uh, um, if you have more than Two generations of that. What hope of what hope of children got? They don't have any hope. You know what? What are you going to do when you grow up? Well, I'll be a drug addict. That's what you'll be, and that's that's really awful. Um, I don't. I wish I knew 
how to sort it's a lack of it's a lack of purpose so um yeah. well no look i'm not who am i to see here like i went to fucking good school right like i i'm no, no not even anywhere near it but but what what i i Eileen walsh says and I, as i say in the podcast i watched before our conversation is he says people think train spotting is a book about drugs it's not it's a book about kids having no purpose mm. and when you have no purpose you have i think the other side of purpose is hope they're yeah. like the same thing right yeah when you have no purpose and no hope, you need something to fill the void. Yeah. And when you're in the, as you say, the psychological or mental wilderness, the one that kind of takes you out of that wilderness into something else, into yeah. a safer place, is fucking heroin or drugs. Yeah. And it's, so you can, it's it's just how you see. Well, what you said there is, does, does does Scotland have a darkness to its soul? Like I find that really interesting. But what like. How, yeah, how do you solve that problem? So you go over that border and it's three times worse. It's yeah. like... Yeah. 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 I'm sure if there, if there was an answer, some would have, someone would have identified it, but, but uh, I can't see it, you know? Uh, I, I did a charity thing um, uh, when I was up there filming this, uh, the, this thing called Night Sleeper, and it's called um, A Magic Breakfast, and it's... Um, they, it's a charity that uh, try to make sure that, that every uh, junior school child in Scotland mm. gets something to eat in the morning. Um, and where I was at Sight Hill School, wonderful head teacher, a lady, um, she was very inspiring. But um, over 90% of the children who went to our school were socially deprived. And she said when they've had their lunch at school, a lot of them, that's the last meal they have until they get their breakfast in the morning, which is a bagel mm. and marmite. That's it. And then they have lunch, and then they probably don't get anything. In it. I mean, in the 21st century, that's in Britain, yeah. over 90% in that school. Jeez. What, so what were those dark days for you then, or what's been those dark days, or the, maybe the equivalent of? Dark days? I haven't had that many dark days, or at least the dark days... I'll put them in the fucking dustbin. That's 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 done. That's you know we all have dark days. The worst day I had was you know I was working in Arnett Young's the Shipbreakers when I was sixteen, and I was working in the the brass shop. It was Dickensian. It really was Dickensian. It was black and grey. It was a fizzle of winter, and we're all. It was like a Lowry painting. We're all, you know, walking through the rain and. Um, into the factory, they give you a little brass tab with a number on it, and they write the number in the book. You know, a fucking quill pen. They fucking write it down, and then you go in and you you do the. I was burning oxyacetylene stuff and getting the brass off these ships, and uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I sort of decided that this wasn't my my life uh, path that I wanted to be on, but. Those were pretty um, depressing sort of days, you know. But some of those guys had been there since, you know, since the war. They'd been working in that in these horrendous conditions. Jeez, I'm so privileged to get out of it, you know. Are you, every guest I speak to was has some kind of superpower. I think it's you. You have an ability to reframe your situations that could always be worse. Even when you're living in the flat in Twickenham, yeah, they could always be worse. And I think, yeah, 
No, please drop them fucking bomb on me. Yeah. That's a start. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's nobody trying to cut my head off. Um, I'm, I'm, I might, you know, I've, I've been hungry, but I've never starved. Starvation is a different thing. Hunger is a great thing oh. because it makes you want food. And when you get that food, you're really going to enjoy it no matter what it is. Oh. It's going to be really nice. Um, I remember when I was, I was a youngster, I, I, I was sleeping on somebody's couch and, uh, I just didn't, the, the BBC used to rehearse at North Acton. They had a, not a tower block, but a seven-story thing. And those were the rehearsal rooms, but they had a canteen on the top. And I remember it was there, had to be there for 10 days rehearsal, and then we recorded the show. And I'd worked out that I had enough money that I could buy two eggs and toast in the canteen in the morning uh, and then get something at night to eat. And that I, I could survive and then I get paid and I'd be okay. But I tell you, those fried eggs and toast, I used to walk walk to North Acton uh, to save the tube fare, which was fine. It was in the summer. It was lovely. Um, but those eggs and toast tasted just fantastic. You know, it's all, it's all relative, isn't it? It's all about enjoying. It's, it's yeah. about enjoying the, we've got, I've got a friend, uh, Ethan knows as well actually he's got so much money like that he means he's so used to going to a fucking banging banging restaurant every day of the week it's like you you could go to Gordon Ramsay's restaurant tomorrow and it's like to him it's like eating McDonald's it's like yeah. there's no you get so accustomed it's to that, that it's, it's so strange it's just like you've got yeah. that there's no it's almost like it's almost the complete opposite of abject poverty in, in that like when you've that, those kids who can't afford a school meal it's I mean Obviously, you'd much rather be in a situation. There's no, I'm not, I'm not yeah, saying, yeah, but I'm yeah. saying there's when you when you have access to such easy things, yeah, when it's not hard, there's when it the food when you're not hungry, the food doesn't taste as no, good. Of course right? it doesn't. No, so it's like this guy. I've got a word, so it is. So you've got to go further and further. He's got to go further. Yeah. Now, now going yeah. away on holiday all yeah. the time. Yeah. He's like constantly searching for that thing, but like that, there's a constant void there of. You know, he could go and eat at every single restaurant every day of the week in London. It just loses its... Yeah. And and what a huge loss that is. You know, it's like being... Not that I've ever had it uh, and never will, but having limitless amounts of money to spend. Think of what you've lost. What? If... But nothing is value. I know. What? Nothing? No, I can... You know, I can take that bottle of whiskey. I can throw it out through that window and go, fuck off. And somebody will come and repair the window, give me more whiskey, pay off the neighbours. That doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean anything. It can. It's it's awful mm. to to have that. You've lost so much, you know, of of the value of stuff, the value of 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 hard earned money, money that that you you really know you've earned. Like I remember when I was um, uh, when I was labouring on the Clydeside Expressway at a. A ganger, that's the guy that looks after it. So how old were you when you were doing the labouring? Uh, I was about 17. Right, 17. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were acting on the side here? Uh, no, I hadn't started then. Right, okay. And um, uh, this ganger, he was called Paddy. He was an old Irish guy from Donegal. And you have a when you're labouring, you have a week's lying time, which means you don't get paid the first week, you get paid the second week. Mm. So when you leave, you get your lying time. So you get double wages when you leave. Um, so the wages came round, um, didn't get it on the first Thursday. Second Thursday, my wage packet came and the, the foreman came around in a little box with um, a brown, little brown envelope like that with your name on it, you know. And uh, 
he, he said, they are, that's the thanks, like that. And Paddy took his money and he said, Jimmy said, why do you thank him? I don't know, you know. And the thing was that I knew I'd earned that money. Paddy knew I'd earned that money because my back was sore and his back was sore. Mm. So why do you thank someone if they if they pay you for what you've provided? You don't have to give thanks. Mm. Just say that's that's a deal done. Mm. You give me the money and that's it. Yeah, I always remember that. But that money had had real value to me, you know. As I say, because my back was sore. And you know, lots of other benefits. I used to sleep great at night, used to eat huge meals and didn't make any difference to me. I was as fit as a fiddle. But I know that it's that is not comparable to someone who has an awful lot of money. But the level of, of happiness that that provided me was extraordinary. And if you have lots of money, you've been denied that happiness, that effort. Um, money equates to effort. It should do. Money equates to effort. Yeah, this guy doesn't have to work necessarily. So it's there's no we're, we're, no no purpose equals lack of hope equals depression, right? So whether that's in in whether you've got fucking loads of money, right, or whether that's when you're trying to fill that void with, uh, you know, as as they did in train spotting yeah. that's a whole book about well, it's exactly no the same purpose, as no you were saying yeah you know, whereas if you've got loads if, of money if you're in that wilderness you're, you're in that same wilderness yeah, yeah. There's, 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 there's nothing to aim for why mm. why some people there's nothing to aim for because they don't have the uh, education or the circumstance that they can aim at anything my mum and dad and his mum and dad you know they, they were all you know on heroin or whatever what the fuck else am I going to do you know that's that's you there and the rich kid well, you know, I've I've got everything. Well, why do anything? Why do anything? It's the same depression. Of course it is, and you end up in the same place. You know how many how many rich kids have been can shooting up, find something. Oh, this is different. Somebody in the gobbles of Glasgow. Oh, this is different. Take me away from the real world. It's a very dubious um, gift. Is is unearned money? It's so. What and we don't have to go into specifics, but. When did you start to make money off acting? Or was is your did it did, was at, at you had this gradually then sadly gradually grand speech. Yeah. the Mel um, not Mel Gibson sorry Braveheart kicks off. It's a rip roaring success. Yeah. Then you get trade spotting. Do you suddenly go into a load of money then, or what? How, what's the trajectory? I'm just uh, yeah. I mean, it, it all changed, Dan. You know, because it's just uh, an equation. You know, like oh, you've done this, you've done that. So your card, as they call it, suddenly goes whoop. You know, Carl, is that almost like your? It's, it's a thing. You have, somebody fo- somebody phones you up, uh, phones your agent up, and says, "We'd like James Cosmo to do this." And she goes through our, they go through the Rolodex or whatever. I'll look in the computer, just look at my card. Right for an equivalent film, he was making uh, uh, I don't know one hundred fifty thousand uh, for that. So for that, it's slightly bigger. So is that what you got for Braveheart? Is the only no, nowhere near. No, a lot no. less than that. But um, you know, so uh, that's that's your card, but. If you do something big, you suddenly go boom, onto the next level, you know, and then you you maintain that for a while, and you do something, you go, boom, up you go, and it, it just it works that way. And and your relationship, so, so we're talking about money's only good when it's hard earned, right? Yep. Did what? How did that change you? Did, did how did money change you? Did, did it change you? Uh, I've always had a. 
an unhealthy disregard for money. Um, it d- doesn't an unhealthy or healthy. Well, it's pushed out. Some, some people would think it unhealthy because um, I, um, I I'm not um, I'm not acquisitive. I never have been. Um, I live in a, a nice house and things, but um, I wouldn't know how much money I've got. I've got no idea. No idea. My wife would know, but I've no idea. I'm not interested. I, I find it very hard to be interested in just money. You know, like, can I look at that bank account or a pension or whatever, invest? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know and I don't care. I really, I really can't be asked um, to be bothered about that. Goes on back. It goes. I've got enough money to to go away fly fishing, or, or you know, um, I don't. Eat, we don't eat out very often, you know. But if we, if I want to eat out, I can eat out. But um, um, no, no, it doesn't ring my bell. It doesn't ring my bell. It's achievement rings my bell, not money. Achievement rings my bell, not money. Yeah, and I, I realised that with with this podcast, as I. Like I've, I've been very clear from the outset that I want to make money off this, right? Yes. Yeah. As much as I, this does, money does not get me out of bed in the morning, but like, no. I know exactly what I, get. I mean. I made, made fuck all from this thing yeah. for years and no one listened. So it's not, I've got the purpose. It's a bit like you. I love acting. Yeah. I, I love yeah. doing this. Yeah. I love the process of yeah. doing this. Yeah. I would do this for free, right? Right. But then when I started making a bit of money, I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. Like, then I want to go here. And then I was like, do I actually, why am I, do I actually need that much money or am I just, am I just, Anyway, so I got talking to a friend and I was written about this in my newsletter, which I'll put a link in the show notes, mm. all about what's the that's enough goal. And it's like it's actually it's, it's way less money than you think. Like people can live really good off not that much money. Yeah. The issue is is people think money fills that, that void. They they think the more money, the more it fills up the more that void's filled, that it's yeah. not necessary. Yeah. Um and I think for people listening to this, is it's just that go back to what is the process goal? What is the what's the thing you can keep doing and enjoying? Yeah. Let Let's talk about the story. Well, you, you you need to climb that mountain and understand that it's the climbing of the mountain that in itself is the reward. Because when you get to the top of the mountain, there isn't anything there. Uh-huh. There isn't anything there. It was a journey. It's certainly it's, it's it's not even cliche, but it's quite a cliche. But so many get, I've sat here with founders who've built some huge brands. They all say the same thing. So so many people said the day I sold the business was the most depressing day of my life because they lost the process, they lost the purpose. No yeah. purpose equals hope. Yeah. Hopelessness equals depression. Yeah. Whether that's you've got loads of money or you're fucking skint in Glasgow, right? Yeah. It's the same yeah. same mental wilderness. Yeah. yeah. Um. Let's talk about the, the story of yeah. whiskey. Yeah. So, so what's the genesis of this? Okay, so um, I, you know, when you're you're doing films and things, and oh, when you're doing films, uh, it, it's a sort of um tradition that uh, uh, you you give people presents, you know, and you usually go around, you know, like oh, maybe there's six cast members. Do I buy Oh, go down to. Waterstones, wander around by, maybe they're like that. I don't know. So you, it's it's annoying, and I thought, you know, I'd, I'd like, you know, like a just a whiskey that, like, that you couldn't buy, um, but it was it was like my whiskey, um, that I could give to 
friends and people I've worked with. So my my business partner, the Sandy Pancholi, um, he's a pilot um, at British Airways. Um, well, sitting in there, he's an Indian guy, and I said, uh, I was talking about that, and I'd been, um, uh, I did a film. I was briefly in a film called uh, The Outlaw King with Chris Pine and uh, David McKenzie, director, a terrific, wonderful director, another wonderful director, uh, Scottish, um, very hugely talented guy. Uh, anyway, they, they had an idea to, to bring out a Outlaw King whiskey, and they approached this, uh, I like to call it a boutique distillery in Dumfries. You know, it's independently owned, you know, we most it's either Diageo or Santori own everything, you know. But this is owned by a guy called David Thompson and his wife, Professor Thompson. Um, and it's their baby, as they say. Anyway, they had this um, whiskey that they were going to do, and they asked me to come up as one of the people that was in it and promote it. So I went up and we got a cask, and I met David and his wife and and all the folk there, Um and they were lovely. It's a lovely location and a beautiful distillery, Twin Stills. Um, David had poured millions into getting it just right. Um, he's a real aficionado. He just loves the whole world of whiskey and poetry and music and all. He's, he's lovely. Um, he's very dedicated to the whole thing. Anyway, I met them and we promoted Outlocking. And then something kept some, I think it was a copyright thing that, had slipped through the net, they couldn't produce the whiskey. So that was that gone outlocking. Um, but so a couple of years later, I'm uh, talking with Andy, it was just near New Year, and um, I said, I was telling you, you know, I'd like, I'd like to do something with that. He said, Well, I'll, I'll, when you distill it, I said, Yeah, Annandale. He went, I'll give him a ring. So it was, it was, what year was this? Oh, three years ago. Three years ago, Phil. He said, I'll give him a ring. So he's an Indian, so they don't celebrate Christmas very much. He phoned them on Christmas, uh, New Year's Day. Phone, he said, I'll leave a message in the answer for Arendelle, just to say, could you get back to me? Well, he phoned a guy called uh, David Ashton Hyde, um, who's the distillery manager, was there on New Year's Day. He's another, he, he's from Salon. He, uh, his mum mom was from Salon. Anyway, he was there working. So they end up having a two-hour conversation, and I... We arrange, I go up, we meet David again, we have all this discussion, and um, we start to think, well, maybe, maybe there's more to this than, you know, just, you know, a couple of hundred bottles of, just buy some whiskey and put it in a bottle. Um, maybe there's more to this. Now, David Thompson also owns a company called NMR, which is the biggest, biggest privately owned market research company in the world, I believe. So he's got a couple of quid. Um, so he set those people on this mission, um, and their mission was to create a brand. And they're very excited because it was the first time they were taking a brand from a blank page, completely blank. This is your job. Create this brand. And then in conjunction with them, um, uh, Keith, uh, he's, their second name escapes me, the blender. And um, we, Keith and I and David started to, to work on the actual product. So it was, it was two branches. Mm. One was creating the image and the 
um, the brand awareness and the other was the actual product, which I was interested in because I didn't want it ever to be a celebrity endorsement. Not that I'm a celebrity, but, you know, somebody, somebody said, you know, I, I, I don't know, but, you know, some, uh, somebody's saying, this is my whiskey, you know, they go click, click, click like that, and he's gone, forget it, and he'll get, you know, whatever they get. I didn't want that. I wanted, I wanted this in there to be what I like and what I wanted to create. And so it wasn't uh, a quick journey. It was a journey of two years of Keith going away, creating different, talking to me, uh, talking to David. We discussed things and, and he would go away and he'd create maybe 20 uh, different samples and we'd, we'd meet up again and we'd try and we'd go, we try something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, all like, what do you think? We've done all, let's, let's do, and he'd go, right, okay, okay. And he'd go away and, you know, three months later, he'd come back with 20 more and it, it just carried on like that. And it, it was yeah, closer and closer and closer. And then eventually we had, I think it was four and we've got it in video somewhere, you know, we sat there and David says, well, test and see what you think. And I went there. It's that one. So, and that was it. And that's, that's the whisk. Yeah. It's, yeah, definitely wax open, James. I think the, um, so, so funny enough, the guy I interviewed last week, Gordon Ramsay's business partner, right, is loads of people thought, basically, Gordon Ramsay had discovered his, this guy's pans. He's basically invented this new fucking frying pan, right? And it, and Gordon Ramsay had tried, so let's get some of that water. Yeah. Um, Gordon Ramsay had tried the. Oh, that's a good idea. Um, put it in from, let me pour that out, give you some fresh water. Uh, thank you. Yeah, see a little whirl. Now, I've got to tell you, when we're up in uh, uh, Edinburgh on Sunday, there's a a place around the corner from the world of whiskey experience where we're doing the, the tasting, <coughs> all the uh, bringing it out. Um, it's a cigar place. They do cigars and whiskey. And they had a blind tasting uh, last week. And they had Story Man in there and various other uh, High-level whiskies, one being uh, Johnny Walker Blue Label, right. two hundred and fifty quid a bottle. Right. Every single time, story man, really best. Ours is fifty quid. Let's give it a whirl. Fifty quid, just a wee and it's a wee touch. Is this horse there? Yeah. Burn. Yes. Had a lot of bridge texture to that. How creamy is it? Mm. Smooth. So smooth. Mm. So smooth. Yeah. And see, how many iterations did you go through to get to that? Oh, God. Just canvas kind of thing. A couple of hundred, maybe, getting down there. Just getting it narrowed. Yeah. 
And then the the branding. So, so I think yeah. the story, man. As, as I said to you, I think every brand is ultimately a story, right? Really and truly. Shame my ugly muggers there, but they, uh, <laughs> they insisted on it. Wasn't he? Just do it is a story. Just yeah. do it is a, is a, is a yeah. thing that links Nike to its consumers. Just do it is when I'm like, right, yeah. I need to go to the gym today. It's like yeah. just do it. Mm-hmm. It's a story that you tell yourself when you when you see Ronaldo on the TV or whoever sponsors or Federer taking that service. Mm-hmm. Is that just do it? So what? It's what, what is the story you're trying to get across as as a brand, or what's what's your mission with the brand? Well, I want the public to know that that's so warm as well. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That this is not this is not me just endorsing something. This is the the spirit of Scotland, and it's the best that we could possibly make. It is the best. The money wasn't a concern. This is the best we can possibly make it. And I, I, I just want people to know that and know that it's it's um it's not a cheap whiskey. It's about fifty pounds or whatever. Um, but we want to get it out there to the the wider world, and uh, so you know when you're buying a bottle of Story Man, you're buying the very best that some hugely talented people could do. It's right there. And you know it is. You've tasted it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's delicious. And what's the the game plan in terms of the strategy of getting it out there? Is it, is it do you want it to be like a, a brand you pick up in Waitrose? Do you want it to keep, uh, keep what's what's the... I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't like to think it'll be one of these... Um, uh, I want, I want people that um, you know. There's that sort of, there's there's whiskey that you drink. You know that stuff. You go, oh, geez, you know, catches you in the back of the throat and things. There's that, you know, that's that's that doesn't cost very much. And then you have incredibly high end whiskies. But I want to make something that is the 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 best we could produce in a. It is a sort of mid when you're talking about fine whiskey. It's it's very reasonably priced. That that was one of the things that. I've, uh, it was interesting when I was because there's a lot of Americans at this thing on Sunday, and uh, a lot of them said, and, and it's so reasonably priced as well. I thought, gee, really? Uh, and the the Americans just loved it, and we had a preponderance of. You've got to remember, it's the fringe in Edinburgh, so there's a lot of international people there, but a lot of American, a lot of Indian, and a lot of Asian, a lot of Chinese folk. They were the main buyers of it. Um, uh, yeah, so we've got a, a Chinese um, a distributor um, who's working on that, and I'm going to go out to China um, later this year uh, to some exhibitions and get it out there because there's a big, big whiskey drinkers out there, uh-huh. and they really look for quality. They really do. I'm going to have to pick you. There's guys being this podcast called Chris D, who's got a a business called Maltdack, which is basically like an exchange for whiskey. Oh, okay. Buyers and sellers. Because you know people now buy whiskey, is, there's like a second-hand market for whiskey. Yeah. I think introduced you to him because he's got a, um, that's his whole business model. And yeah. it's becoming, it's now like, it's such a cherished thing to keep fine whiskeys, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, that's mad. And, so, and I think the, I quite like how you, 
you've got a vision to stay good and not scale. Do you know what I mean? No, no, we don't want to. I mean, you know, you hear these horror stories of these, you know, green whiskeys just pouring out fucking millions of gallons of this stuff. You know, that's that's not us. It's, it'll always be made at Annandale. And therefore, it's, you know, we're, we're never going to swap the world with it, you know. You'll be able to find it, but um, we're, we're going to keep it, you know, we'll, we'll turn it over and there's a public, hopefully, demand more. We'll, we'll, we'll try and make more, but we're never going to push ourselves to to diminish the quality of it. And that will never, that blend will never, ever change. That's it. Uh, it's so reassuring for, for the listeners who are food and drink founders because there is this whole, if you get pulled into the vortex of Instagram and LinkedIn, it's like scale at all costs. And it's like, the more I've, more conversations I've had about this, it's, there's actually something about scale in your ability to st- stay good. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You've got to yeah. stay great. Yeah. One thing that's been, and I don't want to give you names Go, don't give me names here, but this is, I've got to go back to something just because it really spiked my curiosity. But we've talked about Danny and Mel as being great directors and they mm-hmm. gave, you know, this great leadership in terms of eking out, making you feel comfortable, rousing the crew, mm-hmm. being the last man there. Mm-hmm. Is there any example of really bad directors you work with? And don't give me names, but, and not, don't have to give me the film, but just examples of where it hasn't been great as like a contrast in. Yeah. I mean, I, I I, I find it hard to sort of specifically name directors. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Don't name, don't name them. Yeah, it's it's very obvious very quickly when someone doesn't doesn't have it. You get discovered so quickly. I mean, everyone knows. Everyone knows that they're no good. And how does that sort of manifest on a set? It's in a couple of days, you know, all of a sudden, even the caterer, they know. I really. So the good, the good, the good directors have almost like a uh, authority about them as they're on set. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, a few more things to contribute to your time, James. No, no, don't worry. That's loads of time. I'm loving this, but the I want to find out about this frying pan. Um, do you like your cooking? Oh, I love cooking. Oh, mate, you need to try this. So it's it's called Hex Faz. Hectoclad. Hex clad. Hex H E X C L A D. So this guy, funnily enough, Danny Weiner, I was interviewing last week, he, he called in from LA. Uh-huh. And he got this Is it Danny Weiner or Danny Wiener? Yeah, Danny Wiener, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Tricks Wieners in his prime time for sure. Lovely guy. And he had this this Swedish guy call him up and a bit like in terms of him just following his passion, following his purpose. End up flying to China. He kept flying to China, and this Swedish guy basically said to him, "Like you're gonna, you'll find a business idea there over there. Just make sure you keep going to China." And he thought, "And it's just again a lot, a lot of life." Is, he didn't. It was a thing pulling him. I don't know what yeah, happened. Yeah. A bit like you with your acting, right? Yeah. And he would get going to the Ritz Carlton. He couldn't afford to stay there, but he kept going. He's like, "Just hang out in that room, and something good will happen." Uh-huh. And he'd worked. He tried to be an actor. Funnily enough, uh-huh. yeah, he tried to be an actor and failed in Hollywood, became very disenchanted, disillusioned with it. And then he got into cookware as like a way to make some money. This is like 20 years previously. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he was meant to go into this one exhibition room. And I think it was the leader of Korea or one or something like that. But anyway, there was, there was a whole troop of soldiers blocking the barricade there because he was like passing through. Yeah. 
there's an exhibition center. So he couldn't get into the room he wanted for that period of time. Yet it was a short sure. time. So he took a left and talk about sliding doors moments, found this technology called Hexclad. And he was like, oh my God, that's the idea. And now it's a multi, multi, multi million pound brand. It's used by Hayley Bieber. It's used by Halle Berry. Mm-hmm. And basically what it is, is, is you can, every Michelin star restaurant in the world uses it. Is, is, is basically, mm-hmm. well, not every, that's an exaggeration. I exaggerate, but... Gordon Ramsay found it, fell in love with it, and then he reached out to Danny and said, look, this is amazing. I want to be, I want to sponsor, be your um, partner. Uh-huh. And it was, it, Gordon, Gordon came up with, with the analogy or the metaphor, I should say, of it. it's the Rolls Royce of cooking pans. And it's just, it's basically, you can, it's nonstick. It's so easy to cook. You've got, you can get the heat, the temperature. It's this amazing cookware pans. Mm-hmm. They've gone into knives. Um, but yeah, I'll send you a link. Yeah, you like your yeah, cooking. Yeah. It's, but it's a great story in terms yeah. of just just following that purpose or yeah, following that yeah, thing. Yeah. And just as, as you so right, said, doors, he, he said the same thought, doors are going to shut, but you just yeah. keep going. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, there you go. That's it's the stickability. Yeah, yeah. Really, really good guy. And like, I'm going to try and, we're going to try and get beers when he's next in London. Um, but one th- one thing you said, I think it's, it's learning from, your your dad, he said, the act defines the character inside himself. What's the good and the bad, the dark, and how to access it? And I think your dad said, think it, be it. That's right. right? Yeah. Think it, be it. Yeah. I think this is a great lesson for life, right? In terms of having confidence with doing a podcast or have confidence going to a buyer's meeting, having confidence going on a date. Like, think it, be it, right? <laughs> what, what has been the hardest role we've had to play? And how did you think it and then be it? Um... The this there's two. Um one was uh um it was a, a show called uh Sound of Witness and they asked me to play this character who was God, it was so dark. He was obsessed by Milton's Paradise Lost and Milton Paradise, why do I know that? Uh, it's a long and famous poem about the fall of, of uh, Satan. And, and uh, it's a deeply religious um, poem, long poem. But this character, this guy, was obsessed by it. But he was also a serial killer who kidnapped and tortured young girls to death. And they've caught him. And they want him to talk. And it's all about that. And so when I, I um, it was interesting because I read the parts. I was saying, uh, looking, f- yeah, it was fascinating. So I, I, I went and I found two guys, two cops, um, through a friend of mine that's a detective or was a detective. And he put me in touch with these guys whose job, one was retired and, uh, one had retired, but he came back because he was so good at his job, um, which was getting people who had killed some people and they thought maybe there's some more to get them to talk. And they were both very, very good. But it was very disappointing because I, I had meetings with both of them separately. And I said, what? Is there something, is there a hook? Is there something that you go, yeah, huh, yeah, yeah. You've done this before, you know. Like, is that anything that you 
can observe, and both of them said, no, there's nothing. There's nothing. He can be, certainly can be, he can be quiet and timid, um, slight, uh, not physical at all. He can be, can be loud, aggressive. He can be the same as any of us. Just pick anyone in the street, him, that guy over there. Boom. Could be a serial killer. You think, how would that, how, how would you start to portray that guy? And I was just talking about that. You know, when we're talking about preparing that subliminal, um, oh. Process oh. that's going on in your subconscious while you're not thinking about it, but you are. Um, I turned up and I'd, I'd spoken to a friend of mine who's an actor the night before, and I said, Christian, I said, I have got no idea about this guy. I said, I'm fucked. I don't. I don't even know this is the audition. No, no, this is actually to shoot. Right. I would just be offered the parts. Um, I said, I've got no idea. I've got no idea of his accent. And Chris do that. Anyway, so I turn up there. I'm still in the morning. Turn up. And uh, I was sitting in the makeup chair. And uh, I said, he's been in prison, you know, for like, this. we were shooting it a bit back to front, so he's been in prison for quite a while. And I said to the girl, could you... A, a beard, a wee bit longer than this. I said, could you put extensions in there and plait them? So he's got plaited things down there. And I said, put some sort of tattoos that you would do yourself, you know, with a bit of ink out of a biro and a needle, you know, just sort of like random things. Because I thought somebody that's that's been in prison and has no autonomy there's nothing he can do except change himself, make himself something else. And I was sitting, looking at the moon, and she was doing my hand. And it's as if the guy walked into the room and sat on my head. I knew what the accent was. I walked out of the makeup room. I knew exactly who he was. And that not because he had come to me, but that subliminal Process. What do you mean by subliminal process? Well, just a subconscious um, uh, conversation that your brain is having that, that your conscious brain isn't aware of, but it's having that conversation. And that's why you think light bulb moment. It wasn't a light bulb moment. You're subconsciously being cogitating and working things out and then presents it to your conscious brain. And you think, oh, I've just thought of the whole thing. You know, like a, a poet can just suddenly go, like as Robert Burns did in his famous poem, Tamashan, like, oh my God, and just wrote it all down. Yeah, so I write. That wasn't, that wasn't um, an instant thing. There'd been so much going on in your subconscious. This is this the ability to access the subconscious. Yeah. yeah. And so then what was the accent of this weird... It, it was this with the Lord Paradise Lost. It, it was this was a whiny South London accent. Um, which didn't suit his physicality because he was big, and I'd, I used to work weights a lot, so he had big muscles and things. But he had this sort of whiny voice, uh, and he was sort of insidious. It, it, yeah, so it was, it was all there, you know. And uh, so that was that was um, that was a tough one to do because he, you know, like when you're dealing with all that dark, horrible, you know, pretending to talk. Ah, so anyway, um, 
it sort of follows you around for a wee while, you know, that darkness of the soul, you think, oh, gee. So do you have to go into the darkness of your soul to, to pull that into the... Is that, is that what you think the best actors do? Yeah. And what is... Because one of the questions I'm obsessed with is what is the 1% difference, right? Because it's with everything. There's 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 a 1% difference. And I, I asked this to a guy I interviewed the other week and he'd... he'd uh, it was a live podcast and he'd um, made... I know it's not all about the money, but he built some really great big brands to be proud of, like Vitacoco, guys named Charles Brook, um, and a kid's brand called Bear Snacks. They're huge sort of food and drink titan. I was like, what's different about you? Because we're in front of about 130 people. I was like, we could all line up and do eight hours of work a week or 100 hours work a week. That does not mean you're going to be Charles Brook. Mm. There are uh, th- millions of actors who could do hundred hour work weeks. Doesn't mean they're going to be the next DiCaprio or James no, Cosmo. What would you? What is the difference between those who 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 are in the one percent? What do you think? Is it that they can go into the darker places better? Like I don't know. What would you say that is? Well, I, I think there's a, you know in our pro- my profession there's a, a a huge amount of of luck, isn't it? Being you know willing to be in that swim and always being ready to to take. Uh, to jump in and and test the water, see, uh, push yourself, see how far you can go, see see how brave you are as an actor. Um, by brave, uh, by by being willing, you know, like uh, Solzhenitsyn and uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that there is no. So is that sorry? Uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote a wonderful book called The Gulag Archipelago about Russia after the war, and he was in the, the gulags, you know, the concentration camps that the, the communists set up. Millions died, I think, from 19... Well, since Stalin took over in, what was it, 1930-something, uh, to 1954, about 60 million people were killed by the communists. Um, and he wrote a book, he was a prisoner in the gulags he survived but he wrote a wonderful hugely profound book called the gulag archipelago that helped to bring down the soviet union when it when it hit the west um but he he it's a profoundly moving book um but he wrote that the the you know good and evil does not exist um out there you know good and evil run through the heart of everyone you know there is huge good and there's huge evil in everyone, it depends which wolf you feed. You know, if if you feed the good wolf by being good, then that that good wolf will get bigger and stronger, and it will it will dominate the bad wolf. Bad wolf will never go away because if you feed him, he'll get stronger. But so you have to be willing to, as an actor, to to um, access. That bad wolf for a while, that that the, the evil that's in everyone, and try and understand. That's why I find it strange when people say, you know, the you know the TV garbage, you know, oh this monster that did this. It's not a monster. It's a human being that let the bad wolf out and didn't feed the good wolf. And there's no such things as monsters. There's humans that do monstrous things. But there are many monsters. It's like Joe Rogan says, everyone started out as a baby. So even yeah. 
it's 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 in terms of we start as a baby where we get felt fed the wolf good the good wolf gets fed or the bad wolf for example yeah. but we all start out as a baby yeah yeah and it's and it's like yeah. whether you get say you're born in glasgow in abhorrent conditions by default as we were talking mm. about earlier mm. your bad wolf's gonna get fed with yeah, yeah. just by environmental yeah ethan and i got fucking yeah. lucky yeah. like literally so lucky that we we've been by by the default fed more good wolf like yeah. just by luck it's yeah so luck yeah. so much luck but as, as you say, to say everyone's a monster is quite a reductionist way of putting it, I yeah. think. Yeah. In terms of like, how does someone, because I, I obsess with creativity, I think it's just the subliminal thing. Have you ever read the book, The War of Art? No. You need to read that. It's a really yeah. short book, but I think you'll really like it from what yeah. you're saying to me. But it's almost like we've got this darkness in us that we need mm. to access. And that is the creativity. So it's like, mm. And sometimes that, that darkness can actually can manifest itself in great things but then there's also like a nefarious side effect mm. to that for, so for example like Jimi hendrix kurt cobain mm. uh uh amy winehouse they all use that dark wolf yeah to create great things mm. but then there was still some darkness there yeah. how do you dig into that darkness like and then let it bubble out into this into the role and just do, do you see what i mean yeah yeah i do i wish i could explain it dan but you know you do, and that character appeared, you know, and you realise that that to him, that all through his life, he was making micro decisions that was le- that were leading him down a road, a, a very dark road, you know, and you just got to accept that. And, and, you know, when he was doing these dreadful things, or, you know, as an actor, doing these dreadful things to these young girls, he thought that that was, uh, in his mind, that was acceptable and the right thing to do. Uh, uh-huh. Cool. A few, a few more points, James. Yes. So, so we talked about the difference between those who make it and those who don't. Mm. Is there anything else on that? Of what? Why does someone become? I know the luck's involved in all of this, but is there anything else? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a great believer in in um. Uh, not, not even uh, to achieve a degree of success in something, but to 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 achieve a, a degree of of happiness as a human. That if you have a a purpose that is that is moral and ethical, and uh, is not centered upon the self, I think you'll lead a much happier life. And I think that applies to people that run businesses and uh, want want to get out there in the marketplace. I think you've got to, uh, you know, it's like like I don't suppose you've got any kids yet, but it's like it's like when you have a kid, you suddenly realise that that you're not number one in your life. You're not even number two. You're number three because you've got your baby, and the person that feeds your baby that's your partner. And then way down the line, there's you, right? And you've got a job to do. And if you accept that, there's happiness. There's happiness. It's a life with purpose. And it's a life with a purpose that is good. Yeah, I think there's a recurring theme in this, is this this purpose. Big, big, the bigger the purpose, it kind of eviscerates the ability to feel purpose of 
purposefulness. Yeah, no, sorry, purposeless. That's yeah. right. I was saying it. Um, just quickly to wrap things up, mm. and this is just for my own personal things. But yeah. what are your one or two favorite books or favorite stories of all time that have really spoke to your soul? Um, as I previously mentioned, um, the Gulag Archipelago. And uh, there's also another book um, called Man's Search for Meaning uh, by a guy called Viktor Frankl. I've read that. He's very good. Yeah. He's got that quote, which is in between stimulus and response is man's ability to choose. And in that space is freedom. I love that quote. It's basically like no matter what happens to you, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. You control how you look at things. And I think that now you've said that, that... Mm -hmm. Quote speaks a lot to you. Yeah. Were there any roles that you that you wish you'd have gotten but didn't get? Is that you don't have that? No, no, no. The, whatever roles I've had, I've had. Uh, uh, I, I believe that we go down a path, and and uh, um, you know, uh, what as my mum used to say, if "What's for you won't go by you." You know. Uh, Life has a purpose, and and uh, you'll find out what it is. But but don't be, don't despair in things that that um you know in false imaginings. You know if if you uh again that sliding door thing. You know if you you know if we didn't talk for five minutes more, well maybe you wouldn't be on that motorway when somebody crashed the car and you hit them. You know. It's 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 life. That's the way it goes. You know, all you can do is do your best all the way through it. Really, do your best and 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 trust to to a higher purpose that things will work out. What's one piece of if you could one sentence of wisdom you could say to the James when he was seventeen before when he was working on the shipyards? I think it was shipyards. Shipbreakers. Shipbreakers. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Now, you know. With more experience, what would that one piece of wisdom be? Do you think? Read the Bible, because because it's uh, it gives you a grounding in uh, in in man's purpose and being here. And if you if you don't believe, I'm not saying uh, Christian or whatever, but if you if you don't believe in a God, as they say, you'll believe in something. And that's not so good. And it's been proven many times over. The, the, the lack of a God, a good and just God, a moral God in your life, if it's not there, there's a big gap and you will find something to fill that gap. Mm. And it might not be as, as glorious as believing in God. Mm. Yeah, it goes back to the purpose, purpose piece. Yeah. The final question is, what are some of your favourite films that when you watch again and again and again, you learn something new? Oh, Jings. Um, it's not actually a film, Dan. It's um, a TV series. And it was um, uh, um, True Detective with uh, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. I've watched that. And it's such a beautifully crafted piece of work from the writing to the direction, to the acting, to the, the 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 art department, everything about it is so beautifully nuanced and and deep, and you can go deeper and deeper and deeper 
into that show. It's it's just amazing. That's because it, it's the it's the garden. It's the kid on the on the on the um, like lawnmower who's done it, isn't it? I think. Yeah, I, I've watched. Yeah, it. yeah. I remember that being really. I I watched it scary six or eight times. You know, and you, the more you see it, the, the deep the characters. You know, you see the flaws. You see the the. Oh, it's 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 wonderfully worked out. It's fantastic. Well, that's what one like one of life's most underrated experiences: rereading books, yeah, and rewatching films the second, third, fourth time. Yeah. On the film, though, are there any films like that give you close to that true detective feeling? I'll let you know on that. Yeah, let me hey. come to me, James. Been absolute pleasure. I've loved that. My Thank pleasure. You so much. Yeah. I really appreciate. It. Great to talk with you. Thank you so, so much for listening to the podcast. I really, really do appreciate it. If you liked that episode, only if you liked it, please do give it five stars, subscribe, tell all your friends, families, foes, next door but one, cat, dog, whatever. Please tell everyone about this podcast. It means the world to me. And I really want to understand what your pain points are as the new wave of of Challenger Food and Drink brands. Please do hit me up on LinkedIn, search Dan Pope, and hopefully we can together create a more meaningful and powerful podcast for the next wave of Challenger Food and Drink brands. Thank you so much. Thank you.